The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, a passage known as the Lament over Jerusalem. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Loving God, may the words that I speak and the reflections and meditation of all our hearts help to transform us in the like, into the likeness of Christ, that we may serve you in the world through the Spirit's power. Amen. Well, these four verses are the halfway mark of Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, according to Luke. They're jam-packed with tension. Did you feel that, as Paul read to us? It's like they mark the point of no return for Jesus as he journeys on the way. The passage can be divided into two units of thought. The first regarding the Pharisees' warning to Jesus that Herod wants to kill him, and the second regarding Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Regarding the first two verses of the passage, the message version of the Bible puts it like this. Just then, some Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, run for your life. Herod's got your number. He's out to kill you. Jesus says, tell that fox that I've no time for him right now. I'm busy. Today and tomorrow, I'm busy clearing out the demons and healing the sick. The third day, I'm wrapping things up. Besides, it's not proper for a prophet to come to a bad end outside Jerusalem. Well, Jesus has clearly put Herod offside. But which Herod? And why did he want to kill Jesus? Well, the Herodian family was a powerful dynasty in Judean affairs from 37 BCE to 100 CE. And they often worked closely with Rome as client rulers. Four generations of Herods are briefly mentioned in the Gospels and Acts. This Herod, in today's reading, is Antipas. He ruled over only a quarter 
of the Herodian kingdom. So he wasn't the big king. He, he had a quarter of the territory to call his, but it included Galilee. He's not the Herod who wanted to kill Jesus at birth. That was his dad. Herod Antipas ordered John the Baptist's execution, so he's already responsible for his death. And we'll meet him again during Jesus' trial when Pilate tries to fob Jesus off to Herod Antipas, but unsuccessfully. Back in Luke chapter 9, it says that Herod was perplexed. He was confused. He wasn't sure about who Jesus was. And the Pharisees hadn't quite worked out exactly who Jesus was either. But certainly Jesus managed to put both Herod, the civic leader, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, offside. So did Jesus set out to be a social, political, and religious activist? Well, no. But when you consider who he was, the Son of God, and the nature of his mission, how could he not be? Jesus challenged the social, political, and religious status quo simply by being who he was. And Jesus' mission is reflected in the title that he acquired in Greek, the Christ, in Hebrew, Messiah. Christ and Messiah mean anointed one. For what was Jesus anointed? Back to chapter 4 in Luke we go. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit of God to bring good news, release, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the poor, the captive, the blind, and oppressed, and to the hungry, the sad, the hated, and excluded. Problem is, this is dangerous work because it challenges those in power who benefit from the poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression of others. It threatens their power. It exposes their fear of vulnerability. It challenges their motives at their very core. And let's be honest, this idea challenges anyone who has responsibility for the welfare of others. How many human rights activists can you think of who've been assassinated? It's a really interesting question, and if you've got time during the week, it's actually worth a search to see just how long that list might be. And it's probably also helpful to consider that it's not always perfect people who are called to act for justice, that um, God calls people from many bit different backgrounds, none of us perfect, and yet able to contribute in really important ways. Jesus the Christ was anointed by God. The significance of anointing in the Old Testament was that by applying oil to people or objects, it was to mark them or affect a change in their identity or their status. There is anointing in the priestly tradition, and the Pharisees, of course, were familiar with that. 
Most of the occurrences of ritual anointing in the Old Testament were around kingship. It indicated a special relationship between the anointed monarch and God. Prophets were sometimes anointed and sometimes, more often than not, they were the ones who did the anointing of kings and priests. Prophets imparted the spirit of the Lord to others. Prophets spoke with truth to power. Modern day prophets continue to speak truth to power. So these roles of prophet, priest and king are really important as we follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. But sometimes in the Old Testament, anointing was used in in not quite a sort of a really literal way of actually anointing with oil, but rather people were anointed with a designation or appointment of a particular role. Like in Isaiah 61, which says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. And on it goes in Isaiah 61. And this non-literal usage was carried over into the New Testament. And we see it in this designation of Jesus as Messiah or Christ. And we also see it then in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus applies these verses in Isaiah 61 to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So we've heard that Jesus actually doesn't have time to worry about, Jesus, about Herod's threat because he's smack bang in the middle of the ministry for which he was anointed. His face is set towards Jerusalem. There's no going back to Galilee now. Luke describes what Jesus has left to do in his ministry in a particular way. It says he that he's casting out demons and performing cures, and on the third day, he'll be finished. This is prophetic language. Casting out demons in Luke means deliverance from the forces of evil, which the people of the first century believed to be the source of all sickness and disease. And then in the second part of today's reading, we have this beautifully feminine image of Jesus gathering up Jerusalem as a brooding hen gathering her chicks. It's a profound image of protection. Jesus would gladly have protected the city of Jerusalem, but the people would not listen. This is also reminiscent of the Old Testament and of God weeping over Israel's unfaithfulness yearning for Israel to return to God's loving arms. We know that when Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, he will be welcomed, and he'll be welcomed as he enters on a, on a donkey, as a servant king. And the people will shout, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118. But very quickly the tide will turn And Jesus will be crucified, ironically, as king, as king of the Jews. 
Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, stands in contrast to Herod's kingdom and kingship, in stark contrast. I'd encourage you also to have a look at this passage and where it sits in Luke chapter 13. The passage we read today is straddled either side by passages that describe what the kingdom of God is like. Describes the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God expresses what it is that God can provide. God's liberating, healing, saving presence. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. We're seeking God's liberating presence in places of oppression and darkness. We're seeking healing for the world, for the earth, for our communities and for ourselves. We're seeking God's salvation and wholeness. Your kingdom come. And like Jesus, we are people on the way. We're always moving towards the place where God is. As followers of Jesus, we are not only seeking God's kingdom, but we are actively participating in bringing about God's reign of love and peace. We are anointed with oil at our baptism for this. We've also been anointed with God's spirit to equip us for the challenge of, of for the challenge of continuing Christ's mission in the world, to challenge the social, political, and religious status quo if necessary. In the last chapter of Luke, after Jesus' resurrection and just prior to his ascension, he's speaking to the disciples. They're really, it's a precious gathering, and this is what Jesus says. Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to, be, is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So that is a sneak peek of Pentecost. But it's really important during Lent and during this journey of considering what it is that we might make room for, what it is that we make, may take up. It's really important to know that we have been clothed with power from on high. That is, that we are anointed with God's Holy Spirit to do Christ's work as people who belong to the kingdom of God. That is the mission for which we too are anointed. But perhaps there's some of, there, perhaps some of you are saying, well, I'm not sure that I've received that anointing 
I'm not sure that I've received the power of the Spirit of God. I'm not sure that I would call myself a follower of Jesus. That invitation is open to you today. It is open each and every day of your life to say yes to Jesus' work in the world, to say yes to being a follower of Jesus and to experience God's healing, saving, reconciling work in your own life. And we do that together. None of us, it's, this is not, none of this is an individual pursuit. We do it together in the company of one another and that's why it's so important that we meet, that we meet regularly and have time together. There are lots of places I could go to give a practical application of what this mission might look like. But what I've decided to do is simply to look at the five marks of mission of the Anglican Communion to refresh your memory if it's a while since you've seen them or perhaps you're not aware that these exist. These were adopted by the Lambeth Conference, which is the gathering of all the bishops in the Anglican Communion uh, back in the 80s. This is how we encapsulate the mission of the church, which is the mission of Christ as Anglicans. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom. To be people who get aside alongside other people and proclaim the good news in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities. Not always in words, often simply through our actions and making visible the light of Christ for others. To teach, baptise and nurture new believers. The churches sometimes call the organisation that exists for the benefit of those who've not yet joined I think the church is here for the benefit of all of us. It's really important and we all benefit by being part of community. But it's never finished. There's always work to do to welcome new people into God's community of love, which are the words I used to use when I was at school to explain what God's, the kingdom of God is to students. God's community. It's a gathering. It's, we're connected each with the other. And at its heart is love, not a superficial love, but God's strong love that is stronger than everything, stronger than hatred and division and even death. So to teach, baptise and nurture new believers. In a few weeks, we'll have our uh, service of welcoming people into um, the Anglican Communion as well as the confirmation, that group at the moment stands at about 16. So I would encourage you to pray for these people as they approach that really important milestone in their, um, in their life and their faith. To respond to human need by loving service. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the needs of the world, but simply if we find the place where our deep joy and the world's deep need meet, that's a really great place to start in knowing how to respond to human need by loving service. The place where our deep joy, our passion, the things that are really important to us meet the needs that we see in the world. 
to transform unjust structures of society, to challenge the violence of every kind and pursue peace and reconciliation. For some people, this is their professional life. That's the world in which they live in their, in their work. All of us, in some way, in the work that we do, are, challenge, are there to challenge things that are unjust, to challenge violence, and in all things, to seek peace and reconciliation. to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth. When we read Luke's gospel, this connectedness to earth is actually very evident. So my question is, there are probably many ways that you are already participating in this mission, if you think back over the past week, there will be things that you've done and said and explored that reflect participation in this mission. But what might you take up during these weeks of Lent that make a further contribution to the mission of Christ in the world? We're going to close by doing something a little unusual for our 9.30 service. We're going to say together a prayer that was actually written a thousand years ago by Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm was Archbishop of Canterbury around the year 1100. It's a long time ago. But in this prayer, which is, which is um, in our prayer book, I feel like it gathers up this sense of God as a mother wanting to spread her wings around us and to gather us up and to care for us, it opens up the themes of how we might respond with loving service in the world, how God meets us in Christ to save us and to heal us and to reconcile us. So I'm going to invite you to say this Prayer with me as we close, if you would read the words in bold. Let us pray. Jesus, like a mother, you gather your people to you. You are gentle with us as a mother with her children. Often you weep over our sins and our pride. Tenderly you draw us from hatred and judgment. You comfort us in sorrow and bind up our wounds. In sickness you nurse us and with pure milk you feed us. Jesus, by your dying we are born to new life. By your anguish and labour we come forth in joy. Despair turns to hope through your sweet goodness. Through your gentleness we can't find comfort in fear. Your warmth gives life to the dead. Your touch makes sinners righteous. Lord Jesus, in your mercy, heal us. In your love and tenderness, remake us. In your compassion, bring grace and forgiveness. For the beauty of heaven, may your love prepare us. Amen. Would you get ready to stand and um, sing once more?